This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers, on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions of software engineering topics at least once a month. SE Radio is brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine, online at computer.org slash software. For Software Engineering Radio, this is Robert Blumen. Today, I am joined by two guests, Alexander Butzier and Jürgen Lartz. Alexander is a researcher and instructor for the Executive Education Program at the Said Business School, Oxford University, where he was also the co-director of the UK Government Project Leadership Program pilot. He completed his doctoral studies at the Said, studying the risk profile of more than 4,000 IT projects. Prior to his current position, he was a market research executive at T-Mobile and a consultant with McKinsey. He has published many research papers on areas including uncertainty in IT, megaprojects, risk, and decision-making. Jürgen Lartz is a director with McKinsey and Company's business technology office in Berlin, Germany, where he leads their global IT architecture practice. He serves clients in many industries, including telco, electronics, software, logistics, and financial services. Dr. Lartz holds a doctoral degree in physics from the University of Freiburg. He started a collaboration with Oxford's Said Business School, which resulted in a study on failure of IT projects, which we will be discussing. Alex and Jürgen, welcome to Software Engineering Radio. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Today, we will be discussing the failure of large IT projects. I'd like to start with how large is a large IT project? So we actually see that uh, so size is something, particularly in IT projects, that is really difficult to judge. So for instance, if you're building a very large infrastructure thing, uh, like a train station or uh, a road or a bridge, then we would typically say that a large project is something that costs more than a billion dollars. Um, but because IT is really different in its nature, it's really difficult to judge and say as in, it needs to be above that threshold to be large. So what we're seeing from sort of our research, what, what we really should be talking about is what are the problems in IT projects or what is driving some of the difficulties of managing IT projects. And that is not size per se, but uh, it's two other things. Uh, firstly, whether the project is going on for a very long time. So the time span, that kind of size. And uh, secondly, it is whether the project is also transformative to the organization. So in that sense, I'm not really would like to talk about large projects, I wouldn't call them large projects, but rather either very long projects or even better, transformative IT projects. Yeah, I think to, 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 to add to that, Alex, uh, I think one of the, 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 the real uh, counterintuitive uh, results of, of our joint project uh, at the beginning was uh, okay. that we actually didn't find any discriminating f uh, factor whether a project is large in the classical sense or not. Yeah. 
because uh, that was one of the key questions that we asked. Does size actually matter in terms of success rates uh, or failure probability for, for IT projects? And we clearly found uh, that that is not the case. Yeah. Which is also interesting because it is the dominant criteria to define your governance structure. So most organizations that we have worked with and most organizations that, that I've seen, have seen and know, they, they say, okay, if you're above that certain budget size, you report into this board. If you're above that budget size, you're seen as a higher risk and you report directly into the CIO or the XCOM. So and it often governance structure is in with the idea of managing the high risk project is cut by size or by budget size in particular. Yet we see that has really not a lot to do or not nothing to do actually with the success uh, chances and uh, the risks of these projects. I'd like to move on. How do we classify a project as a failure? I think failure is. Uh a difficult uh, attribute to use. Yeah? Failure is something that is highly subjective. I think real failures in the way that, uh, that projects are terminated is something I think that is undisputable. Yeah? But even if a project is, is terminated, in, in some cases, it just has to do with the change in requirements. Yeah? So the the question is what happens with uh, with projects yeah a real failure in the end for an it project is uh, is that it doesn't uh, create the impact that was designed yeah or that it should have uh, delivered yeah so that means that it doesn't support a business uh, process or that it uh, the underlying software uh, doesn't deliver on the analytics or whatever the the task of the, the, the specific software was, yeah? If that is not realized, then I think we have a, have a real failure. Uh, but the factors that we are talking about, uh, uh, cost overruns and uh, time overruns or business case non-deliverables, they're not necessarily linked to failures of projects. Yeah? They are linked to planning uh, accuracies, they are linked to uh, delivery capabilities in organizations. Yeah? So question is whether then the failure in itself uh, is, is the right category to look at. Yeah? And, and to add to that, uh, you could equally ask the questions and what does constitute success? And uh, so there's, there's a great case example from the, it's not an IT project, but it's a project of the Norwegian army which build uh, defense stations along the coast of Norway to defend against the invading Russian Navy or the Soviet Navy, actually. And they built it in the, in the late nine, 1990s. And uh, the project was delivered on time, on uh, cost. Uh, it was delivered exactly with the scope prescribed and was exactly delivered to the quality that they wanted. Um, and yet uh, it went for only into operations for about six months because uh, the threat wasn't there anymore so the world had moved on so even then you can't really say and was that project i mean sort of if you say and we define project because it actually delivered the scope the quality the co on cost uh, and on schedule uh, so, so you wouldn't say that that project was a success. It was a massive waste of taxpayer money. But uh, it, it, by sort of those narrow views of saying, that's a success, that's a failure, that would have counted a success. And as, as Jürgen just said, as in many other projects that struggle along and get finished uh, and might have 
see or might see some changes in the baselines, uh, those are equally not failures. From my point of view, uh, as an IT person, I would say if IT is delivered and it functions, that could still be a business failure versus if it's never delivered or it doesn't work or it arrived not uh, a week late, but a ridiculous amount of time later over budget. I would classify those differently. Is is that a reasonable distinction? <laughs> I was saying, as an, I, I think sort of. The, the, I mean, the, the 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 real line in the sense, the red line is if the if the project gets terminated, it aborted, and nothing ever goes live, and uh, that happens in uh, according to some surveys, in eight to ten percent of all projects. And we also know that the key reason why projects get aborted is because they lost uh, the support of the sponsorship. That's in in eighty percent of the cases is the number one factor. They rarely struggle with technology. That only happens in about thirty percent of the cases um so it is because the world around it has moved on and i think that links back to the other thing that Jürgen mentioned earlier is in it projects are there to deliver an outcome and that's how they should be judged so if if that's late and the outcome was needed earlier and it goes to market a lot later that's not ideal but uh and if it was more expensive and you needed a lot more money to get to the outcome um, again, that's not ideal. Uh, yet, I wouldn't. I would not really always classify it as a failure. Okay, due to all the uncertainties about the future and changes that can occur in in business, we would expect some projects will fail according to one or more of these criteria. Do you have a, a point of view on our failure rates of these projects somehow too high or higher than? necessary or maybe uh, a large amount of avoidable failures occur? I think uh, with respect to, to failure, as, as Alex already has uh, pointed out, uh, as 80% of the, the, the terminated um, uh, projects uh, are terminated because the world has moved on. Yeah, that means uh, uh, they lost the, the support of their, uh, their, their stakeholders uh, mainly because of uh, changes in the business environment, yeah, or changes uh, in uh, uh, towards new organizational or process structures, yeah, yeah. So the question is, uh, I think the question is uh, at least to fifty percent a question of uh, business foresight in the way how requirements are voiced and 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 written. And only to 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 a lesser extent uh, uh, due to the, the the technical delivery capability of IT organizations. Alex, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, so from from our survey, so we we studied these four thousand three hundred and something uh, IT projects, and if we so if, if we, as and as, as we discussed before, we can't really say they're success and failure. However, what we can see is whether they produce were able to produce accurate estimates and were accurately planned. So whether the whole front end and there's a lot of money that's being invested in that, and there's, there's a whole lot of money that is and resources that are spent on governing and supervising these projects. And so the question is there is, and was that money wasted? And then we see sort of from our data that actually five out of 10 projects deliver on budget and deliver on time. But we also see that on average, for instance, for cost overruns, uh, on average, they double their cost. Um, and they're about 
34% late. So, and that, that really begs the question is in sort of what is the problem in IT? Because on the one hand, we see that the typical IT project, so every other, every second IT project is just doing fine, and then there is the rest. So um, what we really see as, as sort of the, the failure rate per se is not so much uh, that there is a high rate of failure and a low rate of successes, but really that is these tail events that that drive up that uh, that that large average despite a lot of projects delivering on time and that's the true risk in IT so in other words it's not about the failure rate per se but we really need to bring down the variability between different IT projects and the big differences of how they are faring and and that is the key point not to say is and we need to improve the typical IT projects it's about reducing the variability between those since you bring that up, that ties in with a point uh, I found very interesting. In reading about this topic, there is a particular catastrophic failure mode that you refer to as a black swan. Explain what that is, Alex. Um, <clears throat> yes. Yeah, so, um, so, so uh, the, the metaphor is borrowed from Nicholas Taleb's book, uh, which he published in 2007, I think. Uh, called the Black Swan, in which he discusses the history of humankind in some cases of uh, where disruptive events have propelled us forward. And uh, he then compares that to some financial instruments, um, some some rare earth and uh, some some shares, and he goes into a critique of the financial markets, in particular traders who believe that they're in a very certain world or they can actually model the risks out there, but they're in a world of wild randomness. And then sometimes massive losses occur, and those he calls uh, black swan events. And interestingly, when we looked at our 4,000 projects, we found a very similar statistical signature uh, that Taleb discovered in some financial markets that indicate these bubbles and these irrational decisions, we seen we see, can see that same statistical signature in the cost performance and the schedule performance of IT projects, and and that has sort of and then we looked a little further into this what these black swan things mean and the metaphor that that he borrows from is from from an old uh, text by John Stuart Mills, the philosopher of 1700s. London, where he tells the story that um, in, in that period in time in London, there was a very famous saying that all swans are white. And then suddenly some Dutch explorers come back from Australia and bring back a pair of black swans. And suddenly a fact that has been verified a gazillion times over the history um, of, of Europe is falsified by the existence of two singular birds. And sort of that is this kind of... It's a very small event with very big ripple effects. So uh, nobody saw it coming before it happened. And afterwards, everybody is thinking, yeah, heck, why the heck did we ever think that uh, swans can only be white? Why can't they be all colors? So, And that's the, that's the interesting analogy that we see that there are some of these low, small or seemingly small but high impact projects in a big portfolio of IT projects that create a lot of trouble, that cause a lot of disruption, and uh, that in hindsight, they seem to make perfect sense. In foresight, most organizations didn't see them coming. Jürgen, uh, some of these examples I found quite spectacular. Would you, do you recall any black swan examples that really make this point 
more concrete. Yeah, I think I um, <laughs> I recall a lot of uh, like small examples. I just can't share them uh, because I mean uh, because of the confidentiality uh, of uh, of the consulting work. Uh, that is very 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 difficult to do. Yeah, but I think a lot of uh, very high profile examples are out in the open and uh, and are published yeah so you if, if you look at kmart for example or healthcare.gov and 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 others yeah so i think this spectacular failures uh, that make it to the press uh, i think it's just the tip of the iceberg uh, that is uh, what i what i can confirm and uh, I mean, we have done together um, actually portfolio reviews uh, for companies. Yeah, so to look at the complete uh, portfolio of IT projects, and uh, I mean, there is not one company that doesn't have at least one or two Plex Swans in there in their in their portfolio. Yeah, in the definition that Alex just gave. Yeah, so uh, I think you will find those in. Uh, in, in every portfolio um, in the way that with the definition that we used uh, that you have a, have a fat tail distribution, first of all, for, for overruns and that you secondly have projects uh, uh, where nobody thought that they could derail and then out of a sudden it happened. Yeah? Uh, so this, this effect that in foresight uh, the organizations were unable to determine uh, the risk candidates. In hindsight, everything was clear and is, is, is clearly clearly there, which has a lot to do with biases in organizations and, and organizational blindness on, on, on certain, uh, certain aspects of capability sets. I, I read about one project that was budgeted for $5 million and in the end, cost 200 million and set in motion the bankruptcy of the entire firm. How can a project get from five to 200 without somebody along the way saying this stop? I think this is uh, psychology. Yeah, I mean, a lot about what we are talking here is uh, has to do with psychology. Yeah? I mean, um, it's, uh, it's an optimism bias uh, that you find in a lot of projects and project plans uh, that actually uh, permeates into the, the project's execution. Yeah? So it's, it's basically the effect that if you look at something um, and it gets a little better, yeah? And, uh, I mean, this kind of derail and never stopping projects normally have to do with, with uh, steering bodies that, that have an optimism bias, uh, that look at progress and see some progress in, in the way how, how projects uh, are delivered. Um, so, they, so to say, they see the, end, uh, the light at the end of the tunnel but the tunnel gets longer and longer, yeah. And they don't lose the sight of the light, but they don't come through, yeah. And there is uh, some organizations that uh, don't have the capability, and in the end, to to actually define uh, the cutoff points for 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 this kind of events, yeah. Because they don't see it in the totality. Normally, they they only see 
the next incremental step. And an alternative explanation to that is, you could be very cynical about this and saying, isn't that those five millions that uh, in, in your example, they estimated in the beginning, were never realistic anyway. So everybody knew right from the start that the project couldn't be delivered at that price point, yet maybe there was no more funding available. So everybody pretended that this would be feasible. And as soon as you start get going, as Jürgen said, as in your show, first incremental steps, it will be really hard for an organization to pull out again. We see very little projects getting abandoned, um, even if they escalate massively. Um, so the tendency is to stick with them and the psychology is to stick with them. And uh, and so you can also see is that uh, not only as a result of optimism, but very sinister politics and organizations that are played to secure funding and uh, start the project because, you know, your chances are you won't be stopped. Yeah, I think we called this uh, the second bias we called strategic misrepresentation. Yeah, <laughs> uh, mostly because, well, technically it's lying, but uh, strategic misrepresentation sounds like a capability that you can become good at, even though you shouldn't. I see. So that would call into question whether some of these projects are even over budget if everyone knew that the budget was deliberately understated. Yeah, I think this is a fact that you that you not only see in IT projects. Actually, you see that in a lot of other 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 uh, projects as well. Yeah, that uh, this kind of it needs to fit into a budget, and uh, we will see what happens when we are on the way, and we will free more more money uh, when we are on the way. Um, I mean, this might be. From a strategic or from a tactical, not from a strategic, but from a tactical point of view, this might sound okay. But the ripple effect that this has is uh, that the planning is not done then in a, in a, in the right way. Yeah, yeah, because it doesn't stop at the tactical or at the decision, but it actually the plans need to to represent uh, the the lower budget that is uh, that is assigned to to a project, and therefore you get get a start on the wrong foot, even if uh, everybody knows that the numbers are not right. Uh, as long as you don't adjust then the planning to, to what you believe is right, uh, you will always uh, run into trouble. Yeah? Actually into more trouble than, than, than other ones. Yeah? And, and we also found that, I mean, there's a very, there's a, the very simple steps that organizations and projects and individual project managers and decision makers can take to, to prevent against this. And the best analogy to describe them is probably uh, if, if you were to remodel your kitchen, you could go to the kitchen studio and have the designer there design your kitchen. And they will quote you a price that you will find acceptable. And then later on, they will come with a lot of changes and upgrades that, that will be added on to the, to, to the price point. Um, or the alternative approach is you basically uh, go around your neighborhood and have a chat and a cup of tea or a cup of coffee with all your neighbors who have recently remodeled their kitchen and ask them what they actually paid in the end. And so what we see and uh, with the IT projects and what is really based on, on a, a great idea by Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, that, uh, which they published in 1979 back then, is, is sort of the second approach. It often gives you a lot more accurate insight into um, what are the true costs of a project. Um, and you can take this kind of political bias and also the optimism bias out of those estimates by simply asking the question, is then 
the last 20 people that wanted to do exactly this kind of projects or similar projects, sort of in what range were they at? And then you can clearly see is then if everybody pays at least 200 million to implement a certain type of IT projects, is in how on earth could you do that for five? So you can actually get a lot more accuracy into these projects by taking an outside view and taking a sort of independent data-driven view of is your project the right size, the right length, and uh, that in, in this way you can get the optimism out of it and also this political bias. So we've been talking here about a major point in your research, which is the role of cognitive bias in project failure. One of the uh, cognitive biases you mentioned in the paper was the idea of black swan denial. I'm wondering, can the black swan failure mode be detected that you're uh, going, going toward that before it's eaten up 10 times or 100 times of its budget? And, and is the right thing to do to cancel those projects at a certain point? So I think where we where we ended up with there is no 100% uh, way that you can actually detect a black swan before it happens. And what you can do is uh, uh, you can lower the probability for black swan to occur when you when you work on uh, specific capability sets in an organization. Secondly, what you can do is you can uh, actually detect as black swan when it had happened when it has happened so when the project has actually start to detect the decree of derail that will happen yeah so you can actually detect and 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 uh, with the probability say this is a project that will lead to a catastrophic uh, escalation curve yeah again through the the reference classes that we have built uh, but you can't actually uh, prevent a black swan from happening, or you can't predict which of the projects actually will turn into a black swan. That is something that you can't do. Yeah. And so, for instance, to give an example, from so some one of the patterns we found in the data is uh, that there are some of these early warning signs that um, the project might be at a higher risk. Um, so again, no certainty, but there's a higher risk that it might turn into a black swan. And and one of those uh, one of those early warning signs is uh, that the baseline shifts very early. So if a project goes into uh, contracting and vendor selection and suddenly the baseline needs to move uh, needs to be adjusted upwards that's a clear red flag right there for black swans and uh, and then another one for instance is if the project manager and everybody associated with the project including the vendor is saying that the project is unique um, and those so those two together actually are the two indicators for the worst case of black swans, the ones with the largest cost overruns and uh, the biggest disruption they can cause for organizations. Another question I have about black swans is if a project fails, the company may lose some money and that happens. But the case where the entire company goes bankrupt is clearly uh, it's important to avoid that case. Earlier, you said the character, one of the failure risks is the transformative project, they're more likely to be a catastrophic failure when a company undertakes a transformative project, they bet the entire business and that goes out of control? Yeah, there is definitely, 
there, there is definitely a higher risk or there is a higher risk uh, associated to, to, to transformative projects, yeah, which uh, has a lot to do not with technical delivery capabilities, but more with uh, the change management that is involved as well as with the ambiguity and uncertainty of uh, requirements uh, when you need to write and when companies write requirements for a future mode of operations uh, that is quite far, far departed from their current mode of operations. Yeah. I think that uh, that pair uh, of facts, you know, so the uncertainty uh, in the requirements set and uh, uh, the change management challenge in in transformative settings uh, is something that that gives you the the higher risk quotient. Yeah. So if if the the example that you saw, uh, that you're referring to is is uh, I think uh, the one company that we described now in one of our articles, uh, which was uh, Carglass, uh, um, Carglass, an auto automobile glass manufacturer and repair facility here here in the UK. And uh, they had a struggling ERP implementation that was delayed, which then led to a loss of their inventory. So they suddenly lost the visibility of the inventory, which, uh, and the company was in a difficult financial position, it pushed them over the edge. And the same thing, uh, sort of this disruption of operations happened in other things as well. So when Levi Strauss was uh, implementing the new ERP system, they did everything by the book to de-risk it. So they they developed their global blueprint, they rolled it out in Europe and Asia first, and then they wanted to come to the US and as a risk mitigation measure, because they thought it might disrupt their operations, they even shipped a full quarter worth of sales ahead of the switchover yet. When it actually happened, it took uh, all the distribution centers in the U.S. offline for about two weeks, which uh, cost them all the quarterly profit and made, uh, I think, if I remember correctly, a 24% dent in their annual profits. So, uh, so a massive impact on the operations there with then the resulting financial consequences. And then if you're in a like, car glass or like Kmart, so when that was still around, where, again, two successive... Uh, very expensive ERP projects that cost a lot more money that come a lot later than planned uh, already squeeze uh, impact a, a company that is already squeezed and in a financially difficult position. It can really push it over the edge, and then you see these things that uh, you can even bring whole companies down by uh, failing IT projects. So, Alex, how would you advise a company? facing the need to replace their inventory system to proceed in such a way as to manage risk to the business? Um, I think we see basically two strategies of what can be done. And the first one is you can predict and provide. Uh, and the second one is predict and prevent. Predict and provide means uh, you have to understand and have a realistic, meaning non-optimistic uh, assessment of what the risks of doing uh, implementing a transformative project truly are. So, and then you can provide for that. And the provision means that you need to create the flexibility, and that is often in terms of schedule buffer and cost contingencies to be able to deal with these not unexpected changes, but uh, with, with the problems that are 
eventually going to arise, the turbulences that every IT project gets into. The second strategy is the predict and prevent, and that is uh, to say, Sim, what is your actual risk exposure of the project? Again, it starts with a view of realism, but then uh, it begins at building some of those capabilities that are able to decrease the likelihood of, for instance, black swan events, so actually start to de-risk your projects. I would add a third uh, category to that, and that is is actually going one step further than just de-risking uh, one project. It's it's actually understanding not just the characteristics of your project that you have and and match that uh, uh, that profile against uh, uh, success and failure failure uh, levers. But it's rather looking at the the overall capability set of the organization to deliver a portfolio of IT projects, because that uh, that organization or that portfolio comes with a with a specific uh, distribution of risk factors, as we have seen in a couple of cases. So you can actually institutionally start uh, to to address your capability profile and uh, increase uh, the awareness of that and and train your people uh, on the uh, on the um, tailing dimensions uh, um, uh, of the main levers to pull to to deliver projects on time and budget what do you think about the proposition that companies should be quicker to cancel projects that are not fitting within those ranges or parameters that they've Established. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, what you, what you what you mentioned, I think, is something that organizations uh, need to learn. Actually, read the indicators in the right way and not uh, perpetuate uh, an optimism bias in the way how they they govern and uh, and steer uh, projects. Yeah, so. I think uh, with the escalation curves uh, that we have seen. There are clear indications uh, when when actually it would be better to to not necessarily terminate a project, but actually put it to a restart. Yeah, so basically reboot. I would say, because in a lot of because in a lot of cases the project or the the cause for for initiating this kind of projects has not gone away. Yeah. So you need, as a as an organization, you need to run something that delivers this kind of capability with a reboot instead of with a with a stopping, yeah? and then uh, with uh, setting up uh, the costs associated with that are higher. Okay, Larry, I want to explore. Uh, we have focused a lot of our shows on the agile movement and agile processes, which have become popular in a large part in response to the failure of very large, heavily planned projects, by breaking things up into smaller pieces and trying to deliver incremental value. Have you seen any impact of agile concepts on these large IT projects, or perhaps they just don't apply? Yeah, so the first question that I would have is... Um... I mean, agile projects uh, by nature are smaller projects. Yeah, so with that, uh, it's fine. Um, but smaller projects still have the same, and from 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 our observation, have have still the same kind of uh, probability for success or probability for failure. 
I think what is interesting is um, is how you actually measure overruns, be it costs or be it schedule in agile settings. Yeah, because uh, agile in itself um, is something that is floating somehow. Yeah? Uh, the budgeting processes um, in organizations that are really agile is different. Yeah, so I would say. We definitely have something, have a challenge in measuring and in comparing it uh, against uh, normal uh, waterfall-based projects. Where it gets interesting, and I think where it gets comparable again, is when you go to Agile at scale. Yeah, So scaled projects uh, where the book that you are following has actually a lot of different chapters and where the chapters uh, need to fit uh, to each other. Yeah. Um, to to make sense out of the story. I think that is something that can be compared directly because uh, you don't have a floating baseline. Yeah? When we but uh, Alex, please comment on the on the statistical validity of of this because when we last looked at it, uh, I think we didn't have enough agile pure agile pro uh, projects in the database to come up with uh, really meaningful results. We we do have yes so so uh, yeah we we don't have that many agile projects at scale and because there's just not that many out there but uh, so what we can see from our data at least is that the um, that agile projects have a better schedule performance so the schedule overruns if you compare agile against waterfall those go down by factor two uh, cost overruns are similar the risk of black swans is very similar from agile projects and other compared to waterfall projects and uh, I know it's very, very difficult and still very early days for Agile to, to really draw a conclusive picture. And a colleague of ours, Jeffrey Pinto, has recently done a survey on the success and uh, the failure of Agile. And he came to a very similar conclusion as in that big IT projects or transformative IT projects struggle and fail, not necessarily because they had the wrong methodology. So it is never about the process chart uh, or the process handbook. Um, at the same time, Agile is doing a lot of things right and it's a, it's a good step in the right direction, particularly in, term, in terms of managing interdependencies, of engaging the users, of engaging the stakeholders. Um, so so it, it, it offers some interesting ideas and we see that it, it makes it, it might make a difference in, in some ways, but not in all ways. Right. Yes, exactly. It just goes into the pipeline and it gets prioritized somewhere. Yeah. Again, I would argue uh, that one needs to look very carefully on uh, what is the effect of uh, the floating baseline uh, that actually comes with the agile met methodology. Yeah. Because I think a lot of the, the, the overruns, at least the, the smaller overruns, uh, that you actually see in normal is uh, that you that you don't have this kind of floating baseline. Yeah, that you don't do the adjustments on uh, on scope creep or on uh, additional scope um, whilst you go, but you need to rebudget. Yeah, We're in a, in an agile project, it is no issue at all when you out of a sudden need to add two more features or three more features. Yeah, it, it's it's not even recognized. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I think that we need to look and there is lots of research that is necessary at that stage to make actually the, the the different project methodologies really comparable and to distinguish uh, 
and and at least uh, filter out the the effect that comes through through this kind of floating baseline uh, phenomenon on 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 agile. Yeah. At the same time, we also see there's a lot of optimism uh, again, like in all projects with agile, for instance. So so looking at some of those cases where agile wasn't very successful, it really raises the question: Is so for instance, what should be your minimum viable product? Um, should it be sort of the easiest case that you have to handle in your system? Uh, and then you say, well, okay, once we ma- manage to implement that, then we can get more complex. Or should you, for instance, start with the most complicated case, with the most complicated product, the most complicated client that your system needs to be able to handle? So, and I, th- I think there is some of those things, is, and there's great optimism around Agile. It is not... As, as Jürgen said, is then it is not the solution if there's a lot of things that can go wrong. It doesn't solve all these problems. Yeah, and and I think it, it points what you just say, Alex. Uh, points in 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 also a very interesting direction. Yeah, um, which uh, actually focuses for agile. We need to focus much more on the outcome. Yeah, and not on the on the administrative side of of projects. Yeah, with with judging whether. An agile project is successful or not? Time and cost overrun are not really the criteria, yeah. But it's uh, it's really the outcome, and and with that, the accuracy in which you actually have defined your requirements, even in 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 the agile world, yeah. So the minimal viable product is just, I think, is a good indicator for that, yeah. So we're getting close to the end of our time here. I'd like you each to uh, talk about where listeners might go to learn more about this topic or about your work generally? Alex? <laughs> we we have published a series of articles and working papers, and they are all on our website uh, of the Said Business School, and they're freely accessible as well through SSRN and ArcScife. Great. And Jürgen? We have, uh, we have published uh, some of that uh, in our uh, McKinsey on uh, business technologies, as well as in the McKinsey Quarterly, uh, which are also accessible over our website. Uh, and uh, in case of any questions or in case of uh, running, actually wanting to run this kind of diagnostics uh, that we that we have talked about, uh, this is definitely a, a service that uh, we actually offer jointly uh, and. Uh, Whoever is interested in that can contact either Alex or myself. Great. Well, thank you both very much for speaking to Software Engineering Radio. And for the listeners, we would love to get your feedback. You can email us, team at se-radio.net, direct message us on Twitter at SE Radio, or find our group on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Google+. For Software Engineering Radio, this has been Robert Blumen. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more information about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can write comments on each episode on the website or write a review on iTunes. Mention or message us on Twitter, at SE Radio, or search for the Software Engineering Radio Group on LinkedIn, Google+, or Facebook. You can also email us at team at se-radio.net. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under the Creative Commons 2.5 license. Thanks again for your support.